Wait a minute. These are donuts. are donuts. These are donuts. These are ham sandwiches. Okay, I love beef sandwiches. Well, how about a sandwich? I know you want a donut. I know you're into the sweets, but a, a, but you said I could have a donut. Well, a ham sandwich isn't so bad, is it? What? Come on, we're not already going to have problems right here, right now, are we? Yeah, you're I said donuts. Well, well I guess it'll sandwich. have to do. This is the first two in the midst of a world title match. Heidi is eating her ham sandwich. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. We are proudly part of the post-wrestling family. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Uh, Nate, I gotta say, this is a landmark episode, much like uh, that, that Nitro we reviewed a while ago that I was in attendance for. This one holds a special place in my heart because this is the episode of pro wrestling that turned me into a smart this is the first time i as a fan can remember looking at pro wrestling booking and saying this doesn't quite add up so it's it's like that moment on that old simpsons episode where lisa embarrasses ralph and you can pinpoint the moment where his heart breaks this <laughs> is this is that for you uh yeah i think it, i think that's a, a fair uh metaphor you know, this is also a big episode because this episode aired the week of my birthday. So mm. I feel in some sort of way this is like Vince Russo's birthday present to me. So it's, it's going to be exciting to uh, discuss it on another edition of the universe's favorite interracial, cross-generational, pop culture, pro wrestling show dedicated to the genius of one Vince and James Russo. Well, if that was a birthday gift, I, I hope it came with a receipt so you could get your you get get some sort of exchange for it. But this is not, I mean I mentioned it right there. This is a special episode for me personally, and it's also a special episode uh, of the podcast because Nate, I remember when when we originally launched this thing all the way back in 2016, we sort of discussed it. and We're like, is this going to be a show where we have uh, performers from the show on? And, and, and we were kind of conflicted about it. Um, but I mean, this week, how how could we not, Nate? I mean, this is uh, this is something that's been a long time coming. This is uh, a a big week on the satellite of hate, and I'm I'm excited. So so, do you want to introduce our test subject this week, or should I? I mean, actually, Nate, I'm gonna let you. I always do it, but let's switch things up. Like, mate, let's let's really give it the gravitas uh, it deserves. Our guest this week is someone who has endured this week's episode uh, live and in the flesh. He was a member of the WCW roster. He is one of the best trainers in the business and, folks, maybe most important and near and dear to my heart. He is the future figurehead commissioner of regular ass wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for brother Lance Storm. Lance, how you doing this week? I'm doing great. I think this is the first time in a decade I haven't been introduced from Calgary, Alberta, <laughs> Canada. 
I mean, with, with U.S.-Canadian relations as they are right now, Lance, I, I think we should just, you know, focus on, on, on the good things and not, uh, not the political implications of your appearance. Exactly. Focus on regular-ass wrestling, which I'm a big supporter of. <laughs> Lance, it's, it's interesting because for us here in the beginning, we like to ask people what they were doing in the year 2000, what their relationship with pro wrestling was in the year 2000. But I think we know what your relationship was uh, uh, in the year 2000 with pro wrestling. You were on this episode. So instead, I wanted to, uh, I guess, rewind it back a little bit and talk about your signing with WCW to, to first get started with. How did that come about? Uh, were you looking at both WCW and WWF? Uh, you know, what, what got you here? What was that transition in the company like? And um, also, I guess, just what were your thoughts on the product coming in? Uh, it, it's really weird watching these nitros back because uh, I'm also watching a year previous with with Brian Alvarez on the Observer site. I realized that I wasn't watching much of the Attitude Era. I was mm-hmm. working, but I needed to get out of ECW because just you knew money was not going to be there long, and, and I knew Paul had a tight relationship with WWE. So I, I just figured if I reach out to WWE, Paul's going to hear about it, and it's going to get screwed up. Yeah. And also, too, WWE had a stacked, stacked locker room at that point. So WCW was where I looked, and I was trying to find a means by which to reach out to them. And in a weird thing, it was a 15-year-old kid from Medicine Medicine Hat, Alberta, that put us together. (laughs) Oh, wow. How'd that come about? He was Terry Taylor's internet stooge. (laughs) that, That if if... I guess this kid, if he saw talent somewhere that he thought was worthwhile, he'd email Terry Taylor and say, you should check this guy out. And I guess Terry listened to him. And <laughs> I got an email from this kid and I'm, he's, oh, you should reach out to Terry Taylor. And I'm like, who is this kid? <laughs> and then finally, I, I guess he kept it up and I'd scroll down and realize he had forwarded me an email from Terry Taylor that it said, if you're not crack, uh, contractually held up, we'd really like to talk to you. Can you reach out? There was the big Mike Awesome lawsuit of whether he mm-hmm. was, you know, contract tampered or not. So they wanted me to make first reach. So thanks to this 15-year-old kid, I reached out to Terry Taylor. Wow. Was fl- flown, flown <laughs> wow. to Atlanta and, and met with Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo and negotiated and cut our deal in a uh, hotel suite in Atlanta. Where is the timing? Uh, uh, I guess had uh, Mike, he had already made his debut in the company? Yeah, Mike made his debut, and it was... My last date was the Hardcore Heaven ECW pay-per-view in May. I don't remember the exact day, but Mm -hmm. the the May pay-per-view was my last ECW date, and I cut my deal with WCW within 30 days of that. Okay. And then my debut would have been, I don't know, June, I'd have guessed. Gotcha. So, and, and for me, I remember they brought you in as this uh, baby face, kind of a quiet baby face, and then abruptly they just decided to turn you heel. Uh, what, what was the, I guess, what was originally, uh, when you signed, when you met with Russo and Bishop, did they share any creative d- direction they wanted to take <laughs> you in? And, and when, did, when did this whole Canadian, uh, you know, sort of killer idea come along? Yeah, when I when I met at the the, the the suite with them both, I negotiated the contract with Eric, and then when we sort of had a you know a rough idea of what we were going to agree to, then Vince Russo sits down at the table and he just looks at me in the face, and he says, "Just off the top of my head, my first creative idea for you is Eric Bischoff's illegitimate son." <laughs> wow, he says, "Because you have what a missed opportunity." Sa- 
And he says, because you have the same cocky, arrogant look on your face that he always has when he talks to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking at Eric going, what the hell's going on? (laughs) Aren't you guys, what's the age difference between you and Eric? Like nine years, 10 years? (laughs) He's 10, maybe 12 years older than me. Yeah. (laughs) Which is probably why he looked thrilled at the idea. It, it, I just, he had to say son. It couldn't have been like lost brother. It had to be son. Yeah. And, and he said that he was hoping to debut me doing run-ins mm-hmm. where someone would almost get their hands on Eric and I would make the save and everyone would wonder why. And then eventually it would be revealed that I was his son and that's why I made the save. <laughs> but thankfully, they brought me into TV one week before my <laughs> debut. Okay. Uh, just to do photo ops and stuff for, for media and press. And I ran by Bischoff in the hallway, and he just stopped me, and he says, just so you know, I kibosh that whole you being my son thing. I'm already in too many angles. I don't need to be in another one. And I'm like, cool <laughs> by me, man. Thanks. And that was the it for being uh, Bischoff's illegitimate son. And then very quickly, he was in zero angles because he would leave the company <laughs> shortly thereafter. Yeah, but they just started with the the run-ins and the debut. My debut, uh, when I did the three-count run-in, was mm-hmm. Johnny Ace's debut. Nice. Uh, because I bumped him into, uh, I think it was the Denver airport connecting to whatever small, crappy town we, were, we did that show from. Uh, and I ran into Johnny. I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm just coming in to see the show, see what's going on. No big deal. I'm like, okay. And then he was my agent. I'm like, what happened to just coming in to see the show, dude? How did you feel the company felt? What, what, was, the, what was the, I guess, the attitude, the atmosphere? And just, well, I guess, where would you have put the health? Did this feel like a company when you came in that would be gone in less than a year? No, not at all. I, I, I don't think anybody ever thought it was going away until it went away. Mm. That, you know, it had had so many ups and downs since, what, 1988 when when Turner bought it that everyone knew that, you know, the rudder breaks occasionally and it steers off course, but the ship floats because Turner's got so much money. And when I went to WCW, I knew that creatively it was not in a good place, but I was looking for job security. And as long as I got to wrestle and for the most part, I got to wrestle with good people. I knew there was a glass ceiling, but it's like I've got security for my family. It's an easy schedule. All I have to do is worry about working with, for the most part, guys I like. So I went in with my eyes open, but I just left the blinders on and I wasn't going to worry about what was being done above or below me on the card. Okay. Mm. Lance, you know, you, you bring up the creative with this company, and that's certainly the aspect of the show that uh, Brian and I look at most closely each and every week on the show. But I'm wondering from a performer standpoint, how much latitude, how much control, how much input did you have on what you were involved in and and how your character would be portrayed? I had very little. I I, I suppose I had a bit just that Johnny Ace was my agent starting out. He was brought in to be a Finnish guy and he needed someone who could execute complicated finishes and get them right and do the matches that he wanted to show was his strength. So he needed someone that could do what he could think of. And I needed someone that could give me a platform to show what I could do. So we were a perfect match in that regard. So for the first, I don't know how many months, uh, up until really sort of my push stopped and I just started, you know, going into random six mans with filthy animals and MIA back and forth. 
Johnny was my agent. He was my advocate. So he was always fighting to give me more minutes, you know, trying to get me more minutes for my matches, trying to get me an extra segment. So I could go to him. Uh, I went to Russo, I think, once. Uh, I kiboshed the name he had created for us. He wanted us to be the CWO, the cre- uh, Canadian World <laughs> Organization. Wow. <laughs> because he thought it would be funny if we got the name wrong and didn't know it was supposed to be orders, so we called it the organization. Wow. Mm. And that was too much for me, and it's like, okay, that's something I'm willing to fight for, so I tracked him down. And he's like, oh, but it's funny. I'm like, but when am I, when was I a comedy act? He's like, I'm not funny. And I'm like, how stupid would I have to be to not know what was the biggest angle ever in WCW (laughs) that put us on the map in the first place? And and he got a bit defensive. He was like, well, what do you suggest? I'm like, well, when Americans think of Canadians, they think of hockey. Hockey's Team Canada. Can we just be Team Canada? And he argued for a little while and finally just said, fine, do what you want, and left. And I'm like, all right, we're Team Canada. Well, <laughs> well change for the better, I'd say. Now, I, I know that I, I have more uh, questions about uh, the creative that led up to this episode, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll hold that until we get into the episode. Um, now, this is usually the time where we take a look at what was going on, the music charts. And, and Lance, since you're here, I thought it would just make the most sense to see what was on top of the Canadian music charts the day of this uh, Nitro. And... and it actually works out perfectly because at the top of the Canadian pop charts was a song by a Canadian band. I've never heard of this song. I don't know if you have, Nate. The song was Bang Bang Boom by the Moffats. I, I might have, but I have no <laughs> recollection of this song or the band. <laughs> okay, great. I'm, I'm not a big music guy, so yeah. I, I have no idea. I don't believe I've ever heard this song in my life. I <laughs> unless unless it's the song that's like bang bang boom, let's go back to my room. I don't think if, it's that one. Okay, and then if it's not that one, I don't know who the who the hell the Moffats are. Okay. It might have been, who knows? Um but the Moffats, <laughs> uh none of us know they did not make an appearance at uh, New Blood Rising, the pay per view. Uh, John Paul is gonna be really, really mad about this. I, I bet I, the, like the Moffats are right under Aqua in terms of John Pollock's music fandom. I don't know. I don't think there's like a Euro trash beat behind it, so I don't know if he's necessarily uh, <laughs> heard it. Uh, but hey, you know what? There we go. We've cleared it off the deck. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode of Nitro. Nitro is on the air from Denver, Colorado, and earlier today, one of the three men involved in the three-way dance. Already, I rate. Our show starts with footage from earlier in the day. Scott Steiner pulled up to the arena with a pipe in his hand and attacked the cameraman shooting the video. Elsewhere, Kevin Nash is shown arriving early for work. Very atypical babyface move for him. <laughs> Goldberg is then shown live arriving at the building, and Doug Dillinger tells him that Nash is already in the building. Just for some insight into arriving at the building, because anyone I tell this story to, they, they just can't believe it. When, when you actually checked in with WCW, you had to go to Doug Dillinger and get a fingerprint scan to confirm that you were checked in. There was a machine, you put your fingerprint on, it would scan it, you'd have to punch in your social security number so that the computer could log you in and what time you got there. Wow. Wow, I'm guessing that was Turner policy or something? Or or was there just an issue of a lot of guys not showing up and other people marking them as here earlier uh, in in the company or something? I I think it was when it got really bad where no top guys did house shows, they started incentive... Uh, based contracts where if you did a house show, you got an extra amount of money. And everybody started showing up ridiculously late. 
Because I remember someone saying that, you know, Sting got an extra $2,500 if he did a host show, but he only got $1,500 if he was late. <laughs> and, and I guess guys would show up late and then try to guilt Doug Dillinger into not writing them down late. Mm. So now, to I- take the... So to take the heat off Doug, it's like, no, it's a fingerprint scan, so I can't fudge it. And everybody had to do a fingerprint scan. I used to joke that it's like prison, just less fun. <laughs> That's what, Now, speaking of a WCW, what was a WCW house show like being backstage? Because I'll read like these house show reports, and you mentioned top guys didn't want to go to them. So you'd have like ones where like Ernest Miller is main eventing. these. House, what was the backstage atmosphere, and what was the attendance like at these WCW house shows? They were not good. We didn't do them very long. When I started, we did one loop of house shows a month. Once a month, we'd do Nitro, Thunder, and then like three or four house shows throughout the week into the weekend, and then do Nitro and Thunder and go home. So we'd have that one nine or ten day loop. And then for the next three or four weeks, it's just Nitro, Thunder. Mm -hmm. And I think I did maybe two or three loops of that, and then it became house shows are losing too much money. We would just do a Sunday host show, Nitro on Monday, Thunder on Tuesday, and go home. And that Sunday host show was just, you know, a couple hundred people at times. Yeah. And it wasn't like morale was bad because you just showed up and it was like, you know, hey, you know, eight or ten minutes do this and you can leave. So it's not like it was stressful, <laughs> but it was embarrassing sometimes because it was, it was so small. Gotcha. We then go live to the arena in Denver, Colorado. As an omen of things to come, a mud pit is shown by the entrance. The Young Dragons are already in the ring. No entrance for them this week. They are facing Vampiro, the Demon, and the Great Muda. Yes, the same Great Muda who aligned himself with the Young Dragons a few weeks ago before joining the Dark Carnival unexplained. This, though, was not the weirdest part of the entrance, as Vampiro has samurai swords in each hand. Now, as if the six men in the ring wasn't enough, Tank Abbott then walks out to join commentary. Jamie Son and Vampiro start the match, but it's irrelevant as the commentators are just discussing Tank's new song with three count. We get some brawling on the floor, and then the dragons just start doing dives. Kaz then brings a ladder into the ring. Young sets up Vampiro as Kaz goes to the top of the ladder, goes for a dive, but totally misses Vamp. I don't know what happened here. I don't know if Vamp was supposed to move it. I don't know what this was. Now, this was not the finish. It was just a transitional spot. The ladder gets taken out of the ring, and we get back to the match. The demon gorilla presses Yang out of the ring, but there's no one to catch him, and the camera totally misses it. Muda tags in, misses the handspring elbow. This then reverts back to a standard tag match for a few seconds with everyone just on the apron. But then a brawl starts. Muda hits the green mist, then goes to the top, hits a moonsault on Yang for the win. After the match, the lights go out. Sting appears to beat up the hit. The heels and the crowd erupts. Uh, we'll pause. Uh, there's some post-match. We'll just talk about the match here. Uh, just, I mean, there were some good, uh, you know, there were some good performers in here, but just way too many bodies in the ring. And um, Lance, I know you said that, you know, Johnny Ace was there helping lay out finish and things like this. This was one of many matches. It just felt like these six guys had not actually talked to each other before they were in the ring that night. And that's entirely possible. There, there <laughs> was very, well, there very much was, you know, division segregation in the locker room, if you will, mm-hmm. that there were the mid-card guys that would hang out and see each other, the top guys that would see each other. And it was, I don't want to say clicky, because it didn't feel so much like high school. It was just, you never saw them. 
there was so many guys you just never saw. So there's a good chance that they got came together for about three minutes and said, "Yeah, Muda will spray the mist and do a moon salt. See you out there." Yeah, this this match to me, Brian, was was a a harbinger of things to come. You know, you you mentioned the mud pit as as our first sign that this might <laughs> not be a top ten nitro of all time. But for me, the moment where my heart kind of sank was 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 in two places in this match. Number one, the commentary overshadowed what was going on in the ring, which is going to be a theme that we see this week. Uh, but number two, when when my man Kaz Hayashi went to the top of the ladder, and the listeners know how how big a Kaz Hayashi stand I am. Like I love me some Kaz Hayashi. When he fell to the mat, and that move, that that maneuver, whatever he was attempting, it had no consequence to what was going on. Uh, I I just was like, okay. We're, this is what we're doing this week, and and I still don't know why uh, we're using somebody as talented as the great Muda for you know just kind of this opening match that has no relevance because these aren't the teams that are going to be fighting at the pay per view. Like it, it's it was just a a, a toss salad of, uh, of of badness from the commentary to you know the the planning of of what this was going to be. So yeah, I was I was I was disappointed because there's a lot of talent in in this ring, and uh, it didn't come to fruition in in a good segment. Yeah, it's what I like to call ADD wrestling. Like there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on, and I can't stay focused on any of it. Yep. And just for a little insight, uh, the story behind why Tank Abbott was with Three Count. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tank was a uh, frequenter of the bar, shall we say. <laughs> and often when we had morning flights, you know, group flights to go to the next town or whatever, uh, I believe Tank came from the bar. And <laughs> he was, and, and he had an alter ego when he was drunk. Um, you've probably heard, maybe you haven't, the stories of Drunkaco. When, when Jericho gets drunk, he used to be, mm-hmm. you know, not as pleasant. Well, mm-hmm. Tank, Tank would like to sing. And he would be on morning flights at 5 a.m. singing. And he was, his alter ego was Tank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> And when, when people in the office realized that he actually wasn't a bad singer, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> and, and Tank Sinatra was entertaining, so they decided to put him with three count as a musical act. Damn. After the match, Sting grabs a mic and says he came to Nitro looking for a fight. Sting says he's already taken out three tonight, and he's looking for a fourth. Sting says he won't leave the ring until Goldberg comes out. Nate, am I wrong, or has Sting never once said the name demon at any point over the last month the guy he's facing at the pay-per-view the guy who burned him last week yeah that, that demon that very no same issue. demon yeah <laughs> why, why did we and I, I know we talked about this last last episode brian but why are we even going back to this because there's so much more that sting could be doing right now you know you got the goldberg thing you got a steiner match that could work you know booker t and sting is a few that i think could do a lot for booker at this time but we're we've still got this loose end of this demon vampiro stuff that we got to tie up that i don't feel like it's it's not helping vampiro it's not helping the demon and it's certainly not helping sting so yeah i wish they would have just kind of moved on from that particular feud well and it is very indicative obviously you know we're seeing Vince Russo's, I guess, booking philosophy here, where you mentioned all of these things he could be doing with bigger people. He is doing them. He's just doing them on TV without any build. The thing that is happening at the pay-per-view is literally him facing a the lowest card guy he possibly could. That's supposed to be the thing we pay for. 
We get him facing Goldberg and Nash and Steiner for free on TV. He faced Jarrett and Booker last week. Tonight, he faced Steiner, yeah. uh, uh, both Steiners, and is in a match with, with Nash. Uh, but at the pay-per-view, the thing we're supposed to pay you money for is the thing that he can't even bother to mention once. And here it was tonight. He took out the Demon and his two stablemates, you know, w- without breaking a sweat. So during the break, we see Goldberg, Nash, and Steiner getting into a pull-apart backstage. Back in the arena, Sting watches the footage and decides to give up on his Goldberg challenge. His sit-in lasted roughly 45 seconds. We then hear <laughs> sirens, and out comes Scott Steiner. Steiner tells Sting that he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Steiner then just beats the shit out of Sting with his pipes. Sting got nothing. Sting got, got uh, he didn't stand up for himself at any point. Just Steiner beat the shit out of him here, guys. Yeah, I was... I was... <laughs> I was so heartbroken with this man. Like Sting, like everybody knows, like that's my guy. Sting's my guy, and he kind of looked like a, like a bit of an idiot in this segment. Like from coming out and I'm, I'm not gonna leave until I get my hands on Goldberg. And then he sees the fracas going on in the back, and he's just like, okay, I guess. I don't know if he, if he was heading back to join the fight or if he was just like, okay, I guess I'll come out later. But then Steiner just charges at him and, and hits him with the pipe, and you know, beats down. Uh, Arguably, you know, the, I know Booker's the champ, but arguably Sting is, you know, your top guy in the company, and, and he kind of mm-hmm. looked like a chump. Yeah, just everybody's fighting everybody, and I, I constantly throughout the show, it's like, what's the actual feud? What, like, what are mm. we building to? Because everybody's fighting everybody for no reason. Now, I got a question, uh, Freelance, about Sting, because I... It, we're at a point here, and later there's an interview with Vince Russo uh, that we'll definitely dive into, mm. but... At this point, it seems like all of the people who kind of had the reputation, uh, uh, you know, quote-unquote, for holding people down, they're kind of all gone. Uh, Lex Luger's not on television. Hogan's obviously gone from the company. Uh, You know, someone like Flair isn't around anymore. But we see Sting here. He's back. He's working multiple matches uh, in a night. He's putting over younger guys. Um, What what was... You know, how was Sting's attitude uh, at this point? He he certainly didn't seem to be one of the, I guess, the, the legends who was looking to, uh, you know, kind of overstay his welcome. Or I could just be, you know, misinterpreting that from the outside. I didn't have a ton of interaction with Sting. I, I did once I worked with him, which is a couple weeks ahead. Uh, and then I spent some time just chatting with him in a gym in the UK once. And I got a world of respect for Sting. He really seemed to want to do what was best for the company. I don't think he was a student of the game in that he was putting a lot of thought into what exactly that was, but he wanted to do right and was willing to do uh, whatever he could. He always seemed like a guy that wanted to give back. And and I think a, a good uh, story about that is when we were in England, um, I don't know how it came up, but I was talking about him never going to WWE. And he said, every time they pitched me to come into WWE, he says, it just always felt like they were a little more interested in how my leaving would hurt WCW than my going there would help them. And he says, yeah. I just wasn't willing to go there under those circumstances. And it's like, I thought that said a lot about him. And when I, when I worked with him, he was game to do anything. He was, to be honest, a, you know, a little nervous of having to do a long, hard competitive match with, you know, the amount of real single matches he'd done at that time, but Sting was so easygoing and easy to deal with. I really like the guy. Well, that's great to hear. I, I, I'm happy to hear that. Nate, I'm sure you're happy to hear that too. Yes, it's, it's uh, you know, in an era where so many of our uh, heroes and legends from, from years gone by uh, turn out not to be great people, uh, <laughs> and Lance and I were talking about this over the weekend, but uh, yeah, it's good that uh, 
that man called Sting is uh, top notch. I, I still love me some Sting. So back in the arena, the cat comes out and says he's going to take control of the show right now. Cat says if Goldberg or Nash screw up tonight's show, he won't send them home because someone might pay them. Instead, the cat offers a trip to jail. Once again, he does not have the authority to uh, make that threat. <laughs> cat then books a pipe on a pole match between Steiner and Sting. Russo's back, baby. This is when the guest of honor, Lance Storm, comes out with his three <laughs> championships. Storm asks Cat to book him in the match he deserves, the match Canadian fans want to see and American fans are afraid of. Storm wants a match with Booker T so he can be the first ever Grand Slam champion in WCW. Uh, now, Lance, I gotta say, all this time, I blamed Russo for giving this match away on TV. You're really the one at fault here. You should have demanded a, a slower <laughs> build for your title shot. Yeah, it's my fault. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was... It was so crazy because a lot of people asked me about this time and it's like it was just such a blur for me. Mm. Yeah. Because I didn't know about anything until the afternoon of. It's You know, I knew about the U.S. title a couple days before because Johnny phoned me to talk about what my finish was going to be because I was getting the big push. But it's like I found out about the hardcore title match, you know, an hour before it happened. I found out about the Cruiserweight title, you know, an hour before it happened. And, and this wow. too, it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, you're working Booker. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so I never really had a chance to think about it much. And when you have more than 15 seconds to think about it, you just think about how wasted this was. Yep. That we didn't have, even from the opening segment till the main event of this show, you know, the, the significance of a guy coming in and in three short weeks could have won every singles championship in this company and really having that final culmination, that fourth match, five minute afterthought, there you go, is, is just insane. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, referenced it at the beginning of the show. This was the first time that as a fan I watched and I was sort of like, huh, this doesn't make sense. Why are you doing this on TV? Why aren't you at least saying, you know, a week in advance or something like this? And we've been talking about it. The thing that really blows your mind is when you realize that the pay-per-view that Sunday was in Canada. And how much sense it would have made for for you to kind of complete that hat trick in Canada, uh, either doing one of two things, uh, either defending all the belts, uh, uh, and then maybe doing a fa uh, uh, you know a stare down with Booker at the end to set it up down the line, or just straight up doing that match in Canada. It really is crazy. And the, and the thing, just hearing you say, is that you found out about winning these titles the afternoon of. So you're saying this wasn't like they didn't sit you down and say, hey, we're going to do this thing. We're going to get every single title over the next couple of weeks. You literally found out week to week that they were giving you these belts. Yeah, exactly. Now, now I wouldn't have, while I think our match could have and should have been on a pay-per-view, I wouldn't have done it in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I think that would have undermined Booker too much because mm. I was stupid over in Vancouver and Book didn't need to be undercut and get booed out of a building. I don't think that would work well for Book. I do like your idea of defending all the titles leading to the challenge on the next one with Booker, or even just, you know, be, you know, build it up to like next week's Nitro so we have a week <laughs> and put it in the main event, give it 25 minutes and not have, you know, catering halfway through the match. <laughs> that's, the thing that, that's the thing that hurts uh, the match that we're going to talk about later is. They didn't even go the route that they did when they had that Nitro a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a few months ago now, Brian, with Sid and Tank Abbott. 
where we had the other members of the roster comment on the match. And we had a video package and you built it up to the main event of the show. We didn't even do that much for Lance and Booker this week. And so when we get to the match, it's like, yeah, it's a good match, but it could have been so much more. But just think about what it could have done for Booker. And that's my biggest thing. If you're going to finally beat me, go nuts, but have somebody get something out of it. Imagine what it could have done for Booker if we had the whole, you know, hour and a half build at least where you talked to all the other guys in the locker room and have the other American baby faces telling book. It's like, dude, you can't let us down. This dude can't come in here and take every single title and make us look bad. It's like you, you got to win this, not just for you, but for WCW and all of America. Mm. And it's like, build it up and put all that pressure on book shoulders and then have them come through and do it. I don't, you're, you're right. I mean, it's something we keep seeing. We've seen week after week is that Booker is showing up and he is having fantastic matches, really great promos. He is ready for the spot, but they're just not drafting the character properly. Unfortunately, the week before this, the match with Sting coming in out of nowhere, this match uh, with you, this, this lack of buildup, even, even a week, even on thunder, if the challenge had come, or even if the show starts with a video telling you this match is happening tonight. Instead, here we are waiting 15, 20 minutes for the challenge to be offered. Booker never cuts a promo and it just happens in the middle of the show with, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the what's what's happening on commentary during all that. <laughs> so this was not the end of the segment. Cat uh, tells Storm's Canadian fans to kiss his American ass, and then Cat says he wants to see Booker whip Storm's ass, and he books the match. This was another thing that was kind of crazy. The challenge is made to Ernest Miller. The challenge is not made to Booker. <laughs> Booker is just sort of booked into this match by happenstance. I don't know what Booker would have done this week had this challenge not been made. <laughs> he's the world champion he doesn't need a he doesn't need a match on this show so we then go to the commentary booth where billy kidman has joined the boys you're this is gonna be a theme tonight guys the commentators are rarely without guests uh throughout the evening kidman says he's made things too personal with tory and tonight he's going to make it tory wilson appreciation night as a way to apologize my my favorite part of this segment is because the cat is still in the ring and his music is still playing, we get the WWE Network dub <laughs> of the Cat's music. And so the whole time, Billy's trying to, you know, set this up, this this Tory Wilson appreciation night. We've got the Casio yeah. great value version of a James Brown song playing in the background, completely undercutting whatever weight Billy is bringing to the segment. It feels like Billy's, like, fucking flip phone is ringing, and he just doesn't want to pick it up till he's done talking. So up next, the tag champs Chronic put their belts on the line against Jindrek and O'Hare after the two teams somehow tied in a three-way match last week. These two teams brawl to start, but it wouldn't be a match on Nitro without some guest commentators as the perfect event walked down and joined the booth. Adams dumps O'Hare as Chuck Palumbo walks to the ringside. Clark hits a dive from the ring to his opponent's outside, which the camera almost missed. The audience is pretty dead here, but gets up for uh, Chronic's trademark spots. O'Hare gets hit with the high times, but Jindrak saves. Jindrak and O'Hare hit a double suplex on Adams. O'Hare then goes up top, and it's a Shantan bomb for a two. Palumbo then runs into the ring, attacks Chronic with a Lex Flexor for the DQ. After the match, all of the heels beat down on Chronic. The filthy animals then hit the ring, and they beat on Chronic too. Then the misfits in action hit the ring, and they even the sides. The filthy animals, aka the only team not in the four-way match at the pay-per-view, steal the tag team belts to end the segment. I I really need this multi-team program to end because every single week this like 15-man pylon is just impossible to follow. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is just the WCW version of Vince Russo's uh, uh, DOA versus uh, the mm-hmm. Los Bariquas versus the just the gang warfare in WWE where it was just constantly having groups and teams run in. And it's it's never good, but it's always busy. Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't know. I feel like I've seen this particular match from Jindrak and O'Hare. Uh on multiple occasions, and yes. I know we haven't, Brian, because this is this is maybe only the third or fourth time they've had a match uh, since we've been doing the show. Feels like every match they do is this match, and I like Jen Dragon O'Hare. I think there's a there's a lot of potential with those guys, but there, there's not enough to get me invested when when they're in a match, particularly when it's Chronic, and you know, no shade on Chronic, but. I didn't like. I have no reason as a fan to cheer for one of these teams. Like I'm not particularly enthused with uh, with Chronic as my world champions, but at the same time, Jindrak and O'Hare. That's that's not an upgrade. Well, you mentioned that you haven't seen this match, but you feel like you have. I mean, it's it's kind of the the knock I could give to a lot of these power plant guys. They I like them the first week, but it's kind of just the same thing uh, over and over again. Um, Lance, not to not to create beef with you in the power plant uh, down in Atlanta. Uh, you're a trainer. Did you ever have any interactions like what, at the power plant? Did what, what's your I guess diagnosis of the facility? Would you say? I've never been to the power plant, and I don't think the problem is the power plant. It's it's mm-hmm. the problem with someone writing the show that doesn't understand wrestling. Yes, <laughs> and you have to realize that. O'Hare and Jindrak have a ton of potential, but they don't know what they're doing yet. Mm. So you need guys that know how to steer a ship. And if you're in the wrestling business, Brian Clark and Brian Adams aren't highly skilled drivers. They, they yes. may have been a lot of places. They may be able to do a lot of things, but they're not the Bobby Eaton, the Arn Andersons that know how to steer a ship. And if you're a booker rather than a writer, or at least a writer that's got some wrestling experience and some respect for the wrestling business, you wouldn't write a story that puts these four guys in a match together because Jindrak and O'Hare and Palumbo and uh, Stasiak, they needed more experienced guys to guide them. And you can't learn that in the power plant. You can't learn that in an empty building. You got to get out on shows. And these guys just weren't ready. Yeah, and that, you bring up a, a great point that, that we're certainly noticing, which is that Vince Russo, say what you will, maybe he's good at coming up with some wacky characters, but he's not a particularly gifted matchmaker in terms of knowing what performers to put together with people. And we'll especially see it later. I think Billy Kidman is a perfect example of just miscasting a lot of characters as well, not putting them necessarily in the, in the, in the, proper, the proper light to shine. And... Uh, I don't know if we necessarily got it on this show, but there's plenty. Actually, no. I would say uh, when we later get to Mike Awesome and Jeff Jarrett, just characters being put together in matches, but the chemistry never feels like it really it really clicks. Uh, I would say nail right on the head. So we go backstage where General Rection gives the Misfits in action their marching orders. Major Gun says her mission is to strip Miss Hancock and the rest of the MIA turn into 12-year-old boys. There was one element to this that I don't know whether it was intentional or, or just a happy coincidence. But when uh, General Rection tells Loco and Cajun to go right and then says him and uh, AWOL will go left. And when he finishes, Cajun and... Uh, Loco, they go right. 
Mm. And it's like, did someone think ahead of time and have them go the wrong way? Or did that just happen by coincidence? (laughs) Uh, Buff Bagwell comes out uh, for the next match with his tag team partner, his mother, Judy. As these two come out, we were shown footage of his mother being attacked once again last week on Thunder. Uh, Nate, I think the only way this angle makes sense is if it's revealed that like Buff is purposely trying to injure his mother for some sort of insurance payoff. Why does he keep bringing her to these shows every week? <laughs> yes, that is, and, and it, you, you you must be reading my mind, Brian, because <laughs> we after week about how. Buff is like the dumbest baby face in the world to keep putting his mother in harm's way. But there's a moment at the end of the match where I almost thought maybe he's actually a genius. This is all <laughs> leading up to a great heel turn on his own mama. But uh, other than that, I have no reason why we're seeing Judy Bagwell week after week. <laughs> Backstage, <gasps> we see Shane Douglas and Tori Wilson. Uh, Shane smells a rat, but Tori tells him not to ruin Tori Wilson Appreciation Night. Uh, I guess she's never seen a wrestling angle before. Canyon then walks in and says that he's got a mixed tag with Tori, but she shoves him off. Canyon then grabs Pamela Paulshuk and forces her to be his tag partner. So we're getting Canyon and Pamela Paulshuk versus Buff and the veteran Judy Bagwell. Buff starts off with some elbows and a swinging neckbreaker off the ropes on Canyon. Canyon goes to tag out, but Pamela refuses. Canyon starts to check out Judy, who gives him the finger. Canyon responds by punching her right in the neck. Canyon then forcibly tags Pamela, who slaps him in response. Canyon then drags Pamela by the hair into the ring. Mean Gene, of all people, then does a run-in. Gene <laughs> kicks Canyon in the balls, and Buff hits the Buff Blockbuster for the win. After the match, Gene consoles Pamela, and Madden calls him her sugar daddy. Um, so while we didn't have any uh, wrestlers on commentary, we did have two commentators in this match. Uh... This, I mean, what what are you gonna say? What are you gonna say about this? There's really, I mean, there's, I. This was just the first of many, many, many uh, misogynistic, uh, you know, tricks out of the Vince Russo playbook on tonight's episode. Yeah. The one thing I, I was surprised because I know at the time the the censors, you know, standards and practices were always on us really big, and the one thing more than anything else was we were not allowed to grab a woman by the hair. Mm-hmm. We could clothesline them, we could pile drive them, we could power bomb them, but you weren't al- well they their th- theory was that's wrestling moves in a wrestling match, but when you grab a woman by the hair it looks like domestic violence. And they freaked out like crazy if you grabbed a woman by the hair and then K- Canyon's dragging poor Pamela Paulshock around. I would imagine people were freaking out backstage. That's that's an interesting distinction for them. That that is that is just strange, and, and you know, talking about strange, the moment in this match where, okay, you know, I do not know the relationship between Buff and Judy Bagwell, but let's assume they have a great relationship as mother and son. If I'm in a professional contest, be it wrestling or or baseball or golf, and my opponent strikes my already injured mother, <laughs> I'm going to continue the contest. I am going to either make a beeline to check on my mother or make a beeline to put these hands on whoever has harmed my mother. But Buff not only finishes the match, he has time to go up to the camera after the match and, and, and do his little Buff pose before <laughs> exiting the ring and checking on his mom. So, Brian Mann, you are right. Buff Bagwell is a heel here. He's got a <laughs> policy out on Judy. Uh, and and, and this, is, this, this might be a, a brilliant angle that everybody missed. It, it just flew over our heads. 
<laughs> uh, Lance, quick question: Did you have any interac- any uh, interactions with uh, Judy Bagwell, or was she much like Sting? She was, uh, you know, she, she wasn't interacting with the rest of the roster. Um, I didn't <laughs> speak to her in WCW. I think I may have met her once, maybe in WWE. I think she might have been backstage once. Very little interaction with Judy, but uh, more than my fair share of interaction with Buff. Thank you very much. <laughs> At the top. <laughs> At the commentary position, Tony brings up a Vince Russo interview that was supposed to run on Thunder. Mm. Sadly, Nate, that video did not run on Thunder, and instead it is being presented on this Nitro. You, you, can't, wi- you can't waste the A-list talent on the B-show. Uh, we then go to the interview that Tony claims WCW management didn't want you to see. WCW management has more sense than they do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should let them write the show. Russo says there will be a time where he will be able to explain his actions at the Bash of the Beach, but he can't do so right now. As it turns out, that time would be three years later in a Florida courtroom. Tony asks Russo why he left the WWF. Russo says it was a great challenge because he wanted to help the talent in WCW. Russo says those individuals holding the younger talent have all been eliminated for the most part. Russo then talks about his favorite thing in the world, ratings. Russo brags that he took Nitro from a 2.8 to a 3.4 in just three months. Quick <laughs> trivia game, guys. What rating do you think this Nitro did? Ooh. I'm going 2.7. Okay. 2.7? Ooh. I would go Price is Right rules and say one. Uh, I'm going to, you know what? This, this is a big episode featuring Landstorm and Booker T that wasn't advertised ahead of time. So I'll go and say that uh, they, they did a 2. 2.9. I'll go. I'll top Lance. I'll go above. Okay, Vince Russo, Mr. 3.4, delivered a Nitro that did a 2.5 rating on this night. Wow. <laughs> you should have went with the $1. <laughs> Russo says that in 10 months he has put WCW where it needs to be. Russo mm. says that he was willing to do whatever he had to do to help the company and acts as though his storyline with Ric Flair was a selfless act. Russo then says he's shooting and attempts to book a match for himself at Starcade against John Rocker. Sadly, that would not happen. Russo says that the new guys are now leading the way, then hilariously segues to a three-way match between Goldberg, Nash, and Scott Steiner. Russo says that what happens in the ring during that three-way will be what's best for business. Oh, when this was on, I, I debated on figuring out where you guys lived and showing up and smacking the boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was... It's been done many times, but has the angle where this place sucks, but I'm going to turn it around ever Mm. turned business around for anybody? Like the beginning of this interview was Tony Giovanni basically saying, why would you come here? WWE was so great. (laughs) Yep. And and also, too, you mentioned that match he was trying to, you know, shoot for himself for the pay-per-view. Do you remember what happened to that pay-per-view instead of that match? Uh, I don't think, was Vince Russo, I, I think he left the company by that point, right? Or was he still... He worked that show in his hometown in Long Island. What did he do? He defeated Booker T for the WCW world title. I mean, so that did, that happens on a Nitro when they're, uh, cause I do believe by the time Starcade came around, uh, they did, they didn't, uh, he was, he was gone from the company, but no, you're right. Uh, in, in a couple of It was months, his hometown, so maybe I've got yeah. the wrong show, but he, he... He won the world title in his hometown. 
He sure wow. did. And he claimed it was, uh, you know what, we're, we're not quite, th- but I'm going to ask you, do you think that was, uh, oh, hold on, I'm looking up uh, Starcade 2000, it would end up not taking place in New York, actually. <laughs> they would end up uh, running a much smaller arena in Washington, D.C. Uh, but you were there for that show when uh, Vince Russo won the world title. Did he claim it was a mistake? Because that's always been his thing afterwards, was that getting speared out of the cage wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, he's full of it. Yeah. What, but what did happen, uh, because when I got there that day and found out he had a world title match with Booker in his hometown, <laughs> I went to Book and said, and I quote, please tell me you're not putting that son of a bitch over tonight. And Booker said, no, we're doing a draw. When I step through the cage, Goldberg's going to spear Russo through the cage and we're going to land at the same time. And <laughs> That's what happened, but the open of the next show, which I think was Thunder, yes. Vince Russo just cuts the promo with the title on his shoulder going, oh, by the way, I hit the ground first, I'm world champion. Mm. He didn't tell Booker he was dropping the title to uh, Russo that night in Nitro. Oh. <laughs> Boy. And then I don't think he <sighs> got it back for a while after that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and, and, and that... That is part of what makes this maybe one of the worst segments to me. And and I'm wondering Lance's opinion because I think there's a way you can kind of do the shoot type of, of, of promo and have it fit within the context of your world that you created. But this is just looking at the camera and, and basically saying to me as a viewer, yeah, everything you're watching is, is crap. And this is why I came here and I'm doing this for the ratings and I want to fight this Atlanta brave for some reason. Like it, it, it just kind of took me out of the show, which is like, this show isn't great to begin with, but when you put something like this in the middle of it, it makes you question why, why I would want to watch the rest of it, Lance. Yeah. It's just rubbing fans noses in the fact that this isn't real. And it's like, we're trying to get into it. We want to, it's like, you know, going out of your way to tell a 10-year-old boy there's no Santa Claus. It's like, just let him enjoy Christmas. <laughs> so right after saying the young guys are leading the way in WCW, Vince Russo presents Sting versus Scott Steiner in a pipe-on-a-pole match. Sting attacks Steiner at ringside, and these two brawl around the ring. They go inside, and Sting hits a flying clothesline. Sting goes for a flying axe handle, but Steiner catches him for a suplex. Steiner, forgetting this is a pipe match, goes for a pin and forces the ref to count. Sting makes a comeback, but the ref takes a bump when Steiner crashes into him. Rick Steiner then comes out and grabs the pipe. Scott, uh, <clears throat> Rick then tosses the pipe to Scott. The ref comes to and rings the bell. So <laughs> Scott Steiner wins this nothing match at three and a half minutes. After the match, Scott locks on a pipe-assisted Steiner recliner. Nash comes in with a chair. They do some sort of, like, dueling chair sword <laughs> fight for a second. And then we get yet another pull-apart from security. Again, Nate, we see this time and time again, week after week. I get that this was the final visual he wanted. Why was this the way to get there? You, you, you didn't need to have this fucking match. You, you, there was just so many other ways to get to this destination to set up this tag match they're going to do later. What a waste yeah. of, of, of three minutes. Well, this particular match, this particular segment, calls into question a lot of things. Like, first of all, going back to the idea of promoting your show you know if, if you're really about ratings vince russo if you're really about that life a you know like we talked about why wouldn't you promote lance and booker longer than you did b the steiner brothers are reuniting on this show that should be a big deal uh, and and they're they're facing 
the Wolfpack, so to speak, having a reunion. So that should be a big deal. Why didn't we promote that at the top of the show? And so to go to this ridiculous pole match, which even back in 2000, blank on a pole was just like, that's, that's, that's a joke. That's a comedy match. That's they did it last week. Yeah, and we just did the Viagra on a pole match last week. So to to not only go back to a similar stipulation, but then to uh, bury the lead that this is the tag match you're going to get, which is really your main event. Never mind that world title match that we're going to stick in the middle of the show. It's like you you you're you don't know what you're doing, man. And, and I know people have said this before. People smarter than I have questioned Vince Russo's uh, uh, storytelling ability, but. It feels very much like this again. This guy's got all the toys, but he doesn't know how to play with them. As soon as they announced the rules, I was just shaking my head. It's like mm-hmm. Scotty beat the hell out of Sting with a pipe to set up this match. So the standard wrestling thing was you put the pipe or the weapon up on a pole, and whoever goes gets it gets to use it to get retribution. But it's just if you grab it, the match is over. Right. Yeah. It's like, what's the point? It's it's capture the flag. We're playing flag football. The guy got beat up with a pipe earlier. Like it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. And like you say, if you're just going to that tag match, couldn't they have just done a pull apart at the beginning of the show between the four of them? And they could have just booked the match and hyped it for the show. Exactly. It's just so weird to see the allocation of time on a show like this. Um, it just it just it's just puzzling how someone like looks at a blank sheet of paper and comes up with that. So we go to the announcers where, of course, they are being joined by some guests. This time it is Mike Awesome and his plus-size companion of the week, Heidi. Mm. Lance Storm then comes down for tonight's world title match. That's right. As we've said, this potentially history-making match didn't even main event this show. Booker hasn't cut a promo uh, about it even. It's just here in the middle of the match, uh, in the middle of the card. Lance says tonight he cements himself as a Canadian great, and it's not his fault that he will be the first Grand Slam champion. Storm says it's not his fault that he's that damn good. He calls for the Canadian national anthem, but Booker's music plays instead. Storm and Booker get into a shouting match before the bell. Lock up. Booker gets whipped into the ropes uh, and hits a shoulder block. Less than a minute into the match, an usher brings down a tray of sandwiches to Awesome's lady friend. However, I guess there's some confusion with the props. They thought it was going to be donuts, and then they argue about it being ham sandwiches when they arrive. Storm hits a palancha from the top rope to Booker outside, but the announcers are busy discussing these ham sandwiches that have just been delivered. Back inside, Booker comes off the ropes, and Storm attempts a Canadian maple leaf, but Booker escapes. Booker comes off the ropes with an axe kick, followed by a Harlem sidekick for a two. Storm goes uh, to the top for a body press, but Booker counters with a power slam. Booker grabs a waist lock, but Storm rolls through into the maple leaf, Booker reaches down and gets into the and, and gets to the ropes. Booker then goes for the bookend, but Storm knees his way out. Booker reverses an Irish whip, hits the bookend for the win at five and a half minutes. Um, surprise, surprise! Uh, two of the best wrestlers in the company had a pretty good match. Uh, There's a post match, but let's talk about this. Um, yeah, I, I think you're being generous by saying it was a a, a great match. It was okay. Uh, you I mean, didn't, for uh, the standards you didn't even <laughs> mention the, the clumsiness and the fall down into the half crab before we actually got there, but <laughs> it could have been so much Heat better. The first Heat time, a battle, Lance. Well, actually in a weird way, sometimes when you stumble and then really fight to get in, I think the smart guys in the crowd buy the finish more because if, mm-hmm. if I was going over with the crab for the world title, it's like, we have to get this spot. I have to get the crab on. So when you fight so damn hard, like a clumsy idiot to get it. 
<laughs> some of the smarter fans might have bought that we were really fighting for a reason rather than just going, screw it, on to the next thing. But there's a couple things you missed early that I, I want to bring up. In my promo, because this was another yes. thing where I argued with, I think it was Russo, it may have just been the agent at the time, or actually, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, I can see his face. He was a writer anyway. But the promo when I mentioned Great Canadians, and I mentioned yes. Doug Flutie and Warren Moon. <laughs> and Warren Moon, I believe, was a quarterback for the Eskimos, and Doug Flutie was a quarterback uh, for the Stampeders. But I called bullshit on that at the time. I'm like, they're not Canadians. It's like, well, yeah, it'd be funny if you think they are. <laughs> and again, I'm back to the, when am I a comedy troupe? Right. I'm supposed to be a guy really proud of being a Canadian. I'd know who Canadians are. <laughs> and I, th I think I could be wrong, but I memory has me think that it's like, I was supposed to mention like even more absurd ones like tiger woods. And wow. <laughs> I I'm like, no. And it's like, well, at least the other guys, there's a reason I might make the mistake. So it's like, I had to cave into that because they were fighting really hard that I had to say those names. And then also too, when, when, if you watch real carefully, when Booker gets into the ring, you can tell he's getting ready to go up in the corner and you, I'm getting ready to get in his way. So he's got to go around me or into me. And just before we actually bump shoulders for the first time, they cut to the crowd. <laughs> I'm just like, have you ever directed wrestling before in your life? It's like, this is going to be the first contact between these two guys. And we bump shoulders. We get in each other's face a little bit. And it's like, you missed it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, see, I'm, I'm glad Lance brought up uh, the promo because uh, if he didn't, I was going to, Brian, man. Like the <laughs> the, the mention of, of Flutie and, and Moon as, as a football fan, it did just warm my heart. But this was, again, the theme of the night, I guess wasted potential like this was a really good match i could have used five more minutes of it i thought you know we've been talking for months about booker bringing a different kind of athleticism into the ring and you pair him up with lance and the technical skills uh i thought it was a really good pairing a really good matchup but then you talk over most of the match with this mike awesome heidi thing uh, and it's not the last time we'll in tonight uh, making fun of a woman because of her weight mm -hmm. um, because that's that's what's hot in, in 2000 I guess but to to go through this whole thing of we got donuts so no they're sandwiches and and you know Mike Awesome who should be one of your your top guys or at least you're building him to be one of your top guys you know going into the pay-per-view against Lance to have him out here essentially being the butt of a joke because he likes bigger women, or at least that's that's what we're being told here as viewers. It, it took away from, I feel, what should have been your focus of your episode, which is your world champion, who ostensibly all these guys, whether it be Sting or Steiner or Goldberg or Lance or Mike Awesome or Jarrett, everybody should be wanting to gun for Booker T. And by having this comedy around it, you kind of undercut the, the impact of this segment. Yeah, and for the record, the booking sheet did say donuts. <laughs> oh, oh. So, so I can imagine Russo in the back. Listen, bro, sandwiches are funnier. Give me some corned beef out here on, on a Kaiser roll, and it'll be hilarious, bro. One, one quick thing, too, just for some insight for something that didn't happen, but the reason we needed to get Mighty Heidi in here was we had the New Blood Rising in Vancouver and the Nitro and Thunder in Kamloops and Kelowna. Mm -hmm. And the original plan, uh, Rhonda Singh, who is a Canadian yep. 
large woman yes. uh, wrestler. They wanted to do mixed tags in the Canada loop with me, with Mighty Heidi, who, uh, spoiler alert, ends up turning on Mike. Uh, and they wanted to do mixed tags with uh, Mike and I and the, the two large women. And that was the original plan, but then they kiboshed it last minute, and then we didn't need Heidi anymore. What a shame. What a shame that didn't come to fruition. Afterwards, Jeff Jarrett nails Booker from behind. Jarrett then takes the Canadian flag and beats on Booker with it. Storm then nails Jarrett with a forearm. So the two heels fight towards the booth, and Jarrett accidentally nails Heidi with the guitar when Storm ducks. This causes Awesome to chase Jarrett into the ring, and Booker hits Jeff with the bookend. Um, this attack was uh, the opposite of the match that just preceded it. Um... Also, I, I got to Nate, is it is it just me? Uh, again, not saying this just because Lance is here. I felt like there was less heat for Jeff Jarrett than for Lance Storm uh, in terms of the crowd giving a shit about the character. Well, I think it's because we had the setup with, with the anti-American stuff. Like, that's, that's something that's always going to get a reaction from, from an American crowd. And I thought Lance was a was a good conduit for that. Uh, but then when you talk about Jarrett, we've 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 spoken about how it's nothing against Jeff Jarrett. Dude's a perfectly capable, perfectly fine professional wrestler. But these stories that they've had around Jeff Jarrett the past six months or so have made him feel, even when he was the champion, made him feel like an afterthought. Like when he was the champ, he was still the number three heel, arguably behind Russo and Bischoff. So. I can see why the crowd, especially coming off of that match, would be more invested in Lance as a heel than Jarrett. So we go backstage where Jeff Jarrett bitches uh, to Pamela Paulshock. He then challenges Mike Awesome to a match. Elsewhere, Sergeant Awal walks into the Nitro Girls dressing room by mistake. Uh, what are the? Why are the Nitro Girls still being flown to television, Nate? They're, they're never on this show. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> to to be fair, I would assume that the Nitro Girls' thumbprints were in that computer system of, of tracking the, the performers, so you know they, they had to get paid too, Brian, man. We go back out to the arena where Billy Kidman comes out with flowers, some chocolates, and a bottle of champagne for Tori Wilson Appreciation Night. Kidman apologizes for the way he's treated Tori. Kidman says he should have never shown the sex tape and that Tori still means the world to him despite her being with the franchise. Douglas and Tori are then shown in the back fighting, and she storms off towards the ring. Kidman asks Tori to come out so they can have a party. Tori walks out, smiling. Kidman asks Tori to remember all the good times they shared. He then brings up Tori's baby pictures and her sweet 16 party. Kidman then airs another tape, her 16th birthday. We are then shown... We are then shown old VHS footage of a plus-sized teenage Tori Wilson just going to town on a birthday cake. Uh, this was actually Tori Wilson in a fat suit, Nate. Um, we established on the last episode, The Clumps was the number one movie in America, so I, I guess they were <laughs> in touch with the zeitgeist. Oh, Russo was like, we need to create our own version of Little Hercules, and it, it will be Tori Wilson. So... It, it should be noted, the arena is totally silent. They don't give a fuck about what's going on here, as the announcers are making fun of an overweight child on their television. In the ring, Tori is mortified as Billy Kidman, the babyface, drops 8x10s of Tori Wilson's younger days from the ceiling. Shane Douglas then tries to attack Kidman from behind, but Kidman counters and decks Douglas. Tori grabs the champagne bottle, but Kidman just straight up punches her before she can use it. You know, guess he did learn something from the Hogan feud. 
Reno then runs in and chokes Kidman out. Reno holds Kidman as Franchise takes his belt off and whips him. Um, man, tonight is just really giving us a dark look into the way Vince Russo sees the world and women in general. Yes, the, the baby face who is into revenge porn, fat mm. shaming, and punching women in the face. Raw, mm-hmm. raw baby face. <laughs> it's just so bad. And the thing that's so, it's so kind of upsetting is... Uh, just before this, um, before the heel turn happened uh, w- w- with you, Lance, you and Kidman were together as a tag team, and I thought you two had some pretty good chemistry. Uh, I was interested to see where, where that would go. Did they ever give you uh, uh, any indication of where that was headed? It, no, they had no plans whatsoever. That was just what they okay. were doing one week. And the week they decided to do the U.S. title tournament, they had to break us up and blow that feud off. And, and Kidman and I joke, we had the shortest program perhaps in wrestling history, because <laughs> we we did the breakup. The match where we broke up, I think, was segment three of Nitro, and the blow-off match was segment seven of Nitro. And then we were never <laughs> spoken of again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, Brian, Brian, man, this might be the worst segment uh, of Nitro I've seen in a long time. And yeah. that's, that's saying something. And, and, it's this is like the I don't know whether you want to say a burrito or or uh, a Sunday, whatever your combination food of choice is. That's what this was of bad ideas. Like, first of all, Billy Kidman, who is supposed to be the, the hero, he's supposed to be the crowd favorite. You're out here fat shaming this woman. You're out here physically putting your hands in, 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 in and uh, attacking this woman. Then we get the debut, kind of, because I guess he debuted on on Thunder, but nobody watches Thunder. Uh, we get the <laughs> debut of Reno here as as an associate of uh, Shane Douglas, and at the end of it, I don't like any of these people. I don't like Billy Kidman as the babyface. I certainly don't like Shane and Reno. And while I have a bit of sympathy for Tori Wilson as a viewer, I'm not really behind her as as a fan because we've seen her do some despicable things over the past few weeks and months. So nobody in this segment comes away as likable or somebody you want to root for. And as such, I thought this was a waste of my TV time back in 2000 and today. Uh, And just a segment that really did no favors for any of the talent involved. For the the silver lining of this segment, I Mm. believe this was the only segment on the show that only involved people involved in this angle. Ooh. That's true. That's true. No one else ran <laughs> in. No one else was on commentary. Silver lining. You're, you're, you're very right. Very astute. This segment was focused in its badness. <laughs> <laughs> Backstage, the misfits in action jump the filthy animals, but the animals make a comeback and lay out the MIA with their stolen belts. The animals go to escape in their car, but Chronic are waiting for them. Chronic then beat their car up with sledgehammers, reminder this company lost over $60 million this year. Disco Inferno then hands the tag belts over to the champs, and Chronic hit him with the high times on the hood of the car. What a rewarding show-long storyline here, guys. Really glad we got all these vignettes. Uh, The greatest thing was how the, the commentators all delighted. Shoot delighted in seeing Disco Inferno get the shit beat out of him. (laughs) <laughs> did, did anybody else notice how bad this car was when the segment started 
It's like you can see the Bondo patches on the side. Like this is a beat up junker. So they, they've yeah. already cut the budget. But this was a piece of garbage car just so they could beat them up. We've come a long way from uh, the beginning of this year where every single episode started with a limousine arriving at the building. Yeah. Uh, this was this was uh, I will give credit. You know, uh, Lance has has brought back my optimism. So I will say this was an improvement over the last segment. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> like I I don't know, man, like. We are again, and I'm starting to sound like a broken record. But this is what you got Rey Mysterio doing this week. This is what you got Hoovy doing this week, man. We, yeah. you had me sit through uh, a Shane Douglas, Tory Wilson, Billy Kidman segment, but Ray can't get a match, and, and so it's like, yeah, this this segment wasn't bad. It, it did what it needed to do to progress the storyline, but in a company that could use all of the quality in-ring matches it it, it it can take at this point you got so many guys that are sidelined or being used in comedy segments or being used in angles that really don't contribute to the to the overall show that it, it's, it's a little disheartening yeah and, and, this- to, mm-hmm. and to continue uh, on the uh, theme of uh, fair treatment of women I think this was a segment where Mark Madden updated us on the status of Pamela Paulshock by saying she's fine, she'll be back on her knees in no time. <laughs> I, I, well, Nate, you bring up uh, Ray, and he is such an interesting case study on this show because we see a lot of characters here, uh, and we see what they would go on to do you know, in the future after leaving this company. The craziest one, though, the day and night transformation has to be Rey Mysterio who in the WWE would go on to become a world champion, would, would become uh, undoubtedly, hands down, uh, a, a legend uh, in, in the sport. And here he is, maskless, as a comedy guy, rarely getting matches uh, on television. For, for you, Lance, where was Ray? Like, like just in, in his mindset, do you know what is his outlook was at the time? Because a couple weeks ago, the two of you had a little bit of an exchange in the ring. It was great, but... For some reason, they just can't see this guy as anything other than, you know, tiny dude in a in a stable that gets no time. Yeah, I think in you know in in two thousand size was still so important. So I I I I I didn't know Ray well, but I I don't think he had aspirations of top of the card because I think you know his whole career he was so small that just having a good salary and a spot on TV was probably not as bad as it seems in hindsight when you realize how special Ray really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he seemed upbeat. He was always great to work with and he's hanging with his friends, having fun. But yeah, one of the more wasted talents when you realize how special the guy truly was. Elsewhere, major guns drags Tigris into the arena. Gun shoves Tigris into the mud pit Guns dry, uh, gun dives in, and these two mud wrestle for a little bit, uh, but they don't even get like the usual like TNA pop from the crowd. They don't care. <laughs> Miss Hancock then uh, makes the save for Tigress. The heels then drown Guns in the mud and kick her. Uh, I guess this is supposed to build to the mud match that's that Sunday, but they kind of gave it away, didn't they? they like, what else is there to build to after this? In fact, you're getting one less woman, so you're actually delivering less on the pay-per-view. <laughs> Like Vince can't even do TNA segments right. Like, come right. on, man. Like, this is a poorly booked segment that is solely there to objectify women, and and you didn't even get that right, man. 
But did the people that set up this mud pit before the show started, like, did they talk to the amazing Kreskin ahead of time to find out that these women in the impromptu segment would end up fighting in it? Yeah, like this, it was. It wasn't even like, oh, we put this here because we're going to do something later. It wasn't like yeah. we had booked the Tigress match. It was just here for. I mean, honestly, why didn't Sting and Scott Steiner brawl into there? Why did everyone else avoid it except for these two? <laughs> Uh, you know what? That's that's how uh, that's how the tag finished with all four of the guys <laughs> rolling around in the mud. And, and I would like to, because I don't think she gets enough credit. Yeah, Tylene Buck, Major Guns. Mm-hmm. She was always all in. It's like when it came time for the matches they they'd have. A lot of the women would complain if they had to do a job. They wanted to make sure they looked strong. Tylene would do whatever she was told. Mm-hmm. And it's like get thrown in the mud. It's like. That girl buried her face and head in the mud and stood there and sold it and was willing to be the butt of the joke because that's what they needed her to do that day. Tylene was always a team player. And I don't think she gets credit for that. Yeah, it's she was, you know, being pushed really hard here, but and, and she would become a, a major focus of storylines with the, you know, with MIA and Team Canada down the line. But it's interesting because she never really showed up anywhere else. I don't think WWE never used her. I don't did she ever go into TNA at any point, Nate? I think she might have had a, a short stint in TNA because I remember on one of those early Nashville pay-per-views they had like a lingerie battle royal because that's mm-hmm. what you do uh, and I think she was one of the competitors and I think she was in XPW for, for a minute but yeah you would think you know I, like I, I love some of that Team Canada stuff with, with Lance and, and, and with Major Guns and, and Elix Skipper and those dudes like that That to me like I, I thought there was more she could have offered than but uh, yeah she was good here for, for what it was. So Jeff Jarrett comes out for the next match against Mike Awesome. Awesome charges the ring and gets stomped down by Jeff. These two brawl to the outside, uh, taking chair sh- uh, <clears throat> taking turns with chair shots. Awesome pulls a table out from underneath the ring to a very light ECW chant. Lanson <laughs> comes uh, into the arena, but somehow avoids joining the commentary team. The one guy who did not take it that far. In the ring, Awesome hits a flying <laughs> clothesline. Awesome follows up with a standing spine buster, but Jarrett reaches the ropes. Storm gets on the apron to distract the ref, allowing Jarrett to pull a chain from his tights, and he nails Awesome. Awesome is able to kick out, though. Awesome then goes for the running powerbomb onto the table, but Storm hops on the apron. Awesome then forearms Storm onto the table, unfortunately does not break, uh, but then gets caught with the stroke from behind for a Jeff Jarrett victory. Um, This was one I sort of mentioned earlier. It never quite clicked for me, uh, these two, and I think what's... Uh, a real shame, Nate, is that Mike Awesome's reactions have really gone south since getting this new gimmick. Uh, he was over as a monster. When they turned him babyface for that one week, it was really working. But ever since they've given him this fat chick thriller thing, the audience just does not buy him as legitimate anymore. It's a matter of, you know, you reap what you sow. And so I can't see why, you know, they would be surprised for any other reaction. You know, you took this guy and turned him into a comedy character and not not even a good comedy character because at the crux of this joke you know we're making fun of not only Mike Awesome but whatever you know plus size woman he happens to have with him this you know that particular week and for a guy who I was so excited when he came into WCW back in 2000 because I was a big ECW fan and I was like oh my goodness do you know this this dude is going to come in he's going to have some great matches you know he's a big dude that can fly and he's got this crazy move set and then you know we see what they did with them you know whether you're talking about the fat chick thriller gimmick or being Kimberly Page's 
mute valet or, or mute bodyguard. <laughs> Uh, you know, they, they just didn't give this guy, do this guy any favors. Do you know, do you have any insight as to how Awesome got hit with this? Because for me, I look at Mike Awesome and I see uh, everything that he had in the ring and, and his size. You got to go out of your way to fuck it up. And they went out of their way several times to fuck it up with this guy. But I assume, and again, this is a guess on my part, but I assume the fat chick thriller thing was... Mike Awesome's equivalent of me taking the big boot from Kevin Nash last week. Yeah. Mm. It was the, you're not supposed to be getting over and you're not a top guy, so let's make sure everybody knows that. And maybe it was a case of someone realized that, you know, career killer and fat chick thriller kind of had a ring to it. <laughs> and, and that was it. But uh, the only upside is Mike Awesome's wife at the time really loved this gimmick. Because all of the plus size women would uh, be uh, hanging out at the hotel whenever Mike got back to it. And uh, the gimmick was not a shoot, and Mike was not impressed with it, but his wife loved it. <laughs> oh. So we go backstage where Pamela interviews Queewee, who now has a woman by his side. I'm guessing Turner objected to the offensive stereotype he was representing before. Queewee says that Pamela is dressed like a street prostitute. Queewee then reveals the woman is his wife, and her name is Papaya. Papaya is played by the former WWF diva Barbara Bush. She will only be seen twice in the company, I think. But look at this, Nate. Uh, Queewee, uh, he's now, uh, he's got a wife. Who knew? Which stereotypical angle that ended like in the oh i'm not gay bro was more offensive was it the billy and chuck wedding or this queewee papaya thing brian for you i th this was more offensive because it was done so poorly i mean here's the thing if papaya had like ripped off a mask and she was eric bischoff or something that would have been oh. uh exciting but no just just getting barbara bush from wwf and saying it's your wife nah i'm not impressed <laughs> And then when he screams at her and tells her to shut up, uh, more poor treatment of yes. women. Mm. There's, a, there's a theme on, on, these, on these episodes. It is main event time. It is the Steiners versus Sting and Kevin Nash. The Steiners come out and they get a little bit of mic time. Uh, Rick does his usual bite me shtick. Then Scott promises to stick his boot up either Nash or Sting's ass. Nash and Sting then come out as Tony calls this a super main event. Fuck you, Booker T. <laughs> Nash and Rick start in the ring, and Nash gives us the greatest hits. Knee lifts, elbows in the corner. Kev's done all of his offense, so it's time for him to take a break. Rick pounds on Nash until Sting gets the hot tag. This match is just all house show type stalling. No one's doing any moves. It's just all strikes. Rick eventually hits the first move of the match, a belly-to-belly -belly suplex for a two. The Steiners work over Sting until Nash tags in, clears house, and attempts a powerbomb to Rick, but Scott interferes. Sting hits a stinger splash on Scott in the corner. On the outside, Nash powerbombs Rick onto the announce table, but it doesn't break. There's a theme for the night. Scott goes for the recliner on Sting, but Goldberg runs in to zero pop. They've completely killed this character. Way to go, guys. And beats on Steiner. Sting then rolls over for the cover and the win. After the match, Goldberg delivers a sidekick to Sting. Goldberg, Nash, and Scott then brawl as the show ends. Uh, we're out like a light. They don't even get to see uh, the brawl uh, take place. Uh, not great. This was not a good uh, match. Uh, I think it was the longest one on the on the on the card. But damn, again, allocation of time really got a question uh, it on this show. 
Yeah, and you really have to question the ref making a count with Goldberg just standing in the ring still. Yes. Nobody even cares. And the fact that Goldberg got no reaction, it's like, think about that for a minute on how bad you got to screw somebody up where (laughs) Bill Goldberg running in is met with just apathy. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just... Looking up and down this card, it's, uh, you know, last week, Nate and I, we kind of rebooked the pay-per-view of sort of like, ooh, this would have been interesting if he did this or did that. It's like, so Sting, all night long, did not say the name The Demon once. That's the guy he's facing at the pay-per-view. They had no interaction. His, his feud is with Goldberg, it looks like. Nash and Goldberg and Steiner are having a three-way, which is for a number one contendership shot. No one has ever mentioned that at any point. Your world champion's in the middle of the card. He doesn't even get to cut a promo at any point ever. Uh, I don't think Jeff Jarrett ever said anything about Booker T. He attacked him, but that was about it. It's just crazy to, to, to look at this roster, which at this time still had a lot of great people in it. And, and, and Nate, if I, how much would you like to see a, a Mike Awesome Goldberg feud? Like, that would be pretty cool, right? But instead, we got ham sandwiches and three ways and shoot promos. And again, you've got to go really far to fuck it up. As, yes. as well as they do. It's it's almost like an, an embarrassment of riches from a talent standpoint. You know, now you might not have the the big name guys that you had in the past, like the Hogan's or the Flares, but you got a lot of talent, man. When you just look up and down the roster, Booker T, Lance Storm, Billy Kidman, Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrero, uh, Kaz Hayashi. Like, you got Kaz Hayashi on this show. And you got, you know, so many talented men and and women on this program but we are going to mismanage each and every one of them almost and like even the ones that we're doing a good job with like lance and booker we're gonna stick them in the middle of the show and not give them any hype not give them any preamble to this big match and so yeah it's it's not a surprise that the ratings were dropping. It's not a surprise that the company wasn't making as much money because you ultimately lead people not to care about the characters if you don't care about how your characters are positioned. And, and you know, I think Goldberg is the fitting example of this. You know, we see him at the top of the program. We see him in that brawl in the back, and then we don't see him again until the end of the night. And by that time, we don't, we don't care about Goldberg, which is something that you should never say on a program. Like, we, we don't care about this top guy who at one point was arguably as hot or hotter than Stone Cold Steve Austin. No, we don't care about this guy. So, yeah, it, it takes a lot, man, to screw up. Uh, now, now, see, now I was happy at first. Now, now I'm getting. Uh, I'm, I'm like Drake. I'm upset. I'm, I'm upset. The, the, the shock, the nerve, the audacity of, of this company to uh, waste uh, a, a lot of talent. Man, they left a lot of money on the table. They certainly did, and I think it's it's the writer conundrum. And and you know, Ed Ferrara and 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 uh, Vince Russo were here at the time. And if the talent gets over and matches are important, writing isn't as important. Mm-hmm. And they just write segments and write segments and write segments. I remember one time I was backstage with with uh, it was Ed Ferrara was running around, and I remember I just half joke him and said, "Man, you're not afraid to write a million segments, are you?" Or it was a million pre tapes. I'm like, "You're not you're not afraid to write a million pre tapes." He's like, "Well, you know, we got to tell those stories." And I said to him, "I said, you realize some of us can tell those stories in the ring, right?" Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me confused, <laughs> and it's like. Mm. With all the talent, you know, you, you forgot great Muda of all people. It's like you forget yes. he's even on the show. Mm-hmm. And 
just give a few of the important people a few more minutes and the show could have been great. Yeah, and just you think about, like we're saying how um, they had that nothing pole match between Sting and Steiner earlier. Maybe that, those three minutes could have been allocated to a promo segment where the people in the main event built up their main event uh, feud. Maybe Booker T could have talked uh, during that, that, that point. I, I mean, I'm not necessarily, you know... You know, I'm I'm not opposed to pre-tapes. I'm not opposed. You know, I I don't think a wrestling show has to be two hours of just straight wrestling. But you look at this this show, and it's really you got to scratch your head about how they allocated time. And again, I just I just can't even fathom how some of these ideas were were the idea that 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 was uh, come up with. Now, I'm curious, uh, 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 Lance, because. Obviously, I've been, uh, you know, at WWE shows. I, I kind of know how uh, that rundown happens in terms of uh, when talent is spoken to uh, and, and how a show is sort of laid out. What Was it an organized process? Uh, what was it like just when you would arrive on show day? And, you know, was there a production meeting? Uh, how, how did that just, how did that go down? There was a production meeting that the, you know, the writers and the agents would be in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, talent showed up. We did our fingerprint scan check-in, went and sat in <laughs> catering and <laughs> killed time. And, and your agent would come find you and he would have, you know, he'd have the whole booking sheet of the show. But he would have your segment. He'd have a page that was photocopied of just your segment. And he would hand you your, well, this is your segment tonight. And he would, you know, help lay it out for you or just tell you what needed to do. And if there was a promo, they would, here's your promo. Now, you were told you were allowed to change it if you wanted to. You could put it in your own words. But this is the gist of what we want. Mm. Uh, so I rewrote the vast majority of my promos. Mm-hmm. But you were, you, know, you were handed the sheet of paper that's like, this is your segment. And very seldom, you know, you'd be given time. You know, hey, you'll have nine minutes or whatever. And generally speaking, that was always cut in half or, you know, two-thirds were taken away from you as a general rule of thumb. Mm. You know, you mentioned because earlier just, that overbooked uh, the show. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier, Lance, about finding out about the Booker match at I, I think you said four o'clock that day. I don't remember the exact time, but it would have been yeah, late afternoon. So, how in terms of what we saw out there, how how much time did you and Booker actually have to kind of go over what you were going to do out there? Well, we we didn't have a lot in that. Again, this was when Johnny Ace was trying to show that he was the finish man that could make a difference. So he called Booker and I into his office and he pretty much had, you know, two or three pages. I don't know how long it was, but he had the whole finish written out. This is what I want. And so there really wasn't a whole lot other than maybe a spot in a, you know, know, it was a five and a half minute match. The finish he gave us was probably three and a half. So there really wasn't a whole lot of for Booker and I to do other than just remember what Johnny wanted us to do. So we were pretty much just this is your match, go do it. And we're like, all right. And that was it. Later on, uh, I much prefer the world title match we had in England on Thunder, you know, a year from now, still not that long, probably three months from now, um, where we were pretty much given the freedom to do what we want. I thought the match was better. And we got more time because it was Thunder. But you were pretty much, here's three and a half minutes of your match and you've got five. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think just by the standards of the time, uh, I definitely think that the the match on this show was definitely better than than a lot of what we've been seeing, uh, you, you know, up to this point. Now, uh, real quick, because I I, I want to uh, 
you know, wrap up this Nitro because I definitely have some questions for the pay-per-view that would come up uh, this, this, the weekend after this show. But uh, but let's go around. I guess I'd say what our uh, our silver linings were for this episode. Uh, uh, Lance, you're our guest, so we'll let you go first. Boy, I think I'm going to stick with a horrible segment as my silver lining is the <laughs> the Tory Appreciation Night in that at least it involved only the core people of the angle. <laughs> mm. I, th- I think picking my segment would just be be too self-serving. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the the Lance Booker segment, uh, corned beef sandwiches aside, is is obviously the best thing on the show. And if if you haven't watched this episode, listeners, that would be the only segment I'd really recommend going back and watching. Uh, but to be different, um, whew, this this is a bad show. It's a tough, it's uh, a oh, tough one. You know what? I'll give it to two men sprinting to the ring that I didn't think were capable of sprinting at this point, and that was Kevin Nash with his and Mean Gene Okerlund sprinting <laughs> to the ring to save Pamela Paulchuk. So I'll, I'll give props to uh, Mean Gene and Kevin Nash's cardiovascular uh, uh, proficiency on this episode. Okay, well, I guess it, it then falls to me. I, I, I've got to give you know some props to uh, our world title match as kind of abrupt and, and in the middle of the show uh, <laughs> as it was. Um you know what? No, you know, I'll say my silver lining is uh, the reunion of the Steiners. It's great to see those two together, even if uh, it's totally unmotivated and they didn't get to uh, really uh, make it seem anything special at all. But it's good to see the two of them together. Um, now, this Sunday would be the uh, New Blood Rising pay-per-view, even though they did really nothing to, uh, to promote it or, or build up to it or, or make you excited, except for a couple graphics on the screen. Now, Lance, you, you would end up having a real... Uh, kind of a head-scratcher of a match on that show with Mike Awesome, the Canadian Rules match for the U.S. title. Um, how, how did that thing even come together? Uh, and it was just, it was so weird because they were so determined to make you uh, a, a heel in a, in a building that clearly didn't have any interest in booing you. Yeah, Mike and I were so disappointed and angry when the match was explained to us. Because mm-hmm. Mike and I go way back. We worked uh, in FMW in 1991, oh, wow. and then we worked in ECW, and then we're in. So it's like we were figuring on having a damn fine match here in Vancouver, and Disco Inferno starts explaining the Canadian rules match to me, and it's just the more I'm listening, I'm like, there's no way this is going to be any good. That it was just it was if it was done in the states, it might get heat. Yeah. And but it was in Canada, and I knew it was the last thing the crowd wanted, and, and it was just terrible. And it was actually the first time I met Bret Hart was at New Blood Rising. Oh, okay, and he actually pulled me aside, and he's like, you know, no offense, but there's a good chance this crowd could turn on you with this finish. And I said to him, I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that's why you're here. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I think they figured no bad, no matter how bad they shit on me in this booking. If Brett comes out and hugs me at the end, I'm okay. Hmm. And it was just such a lost opportunity because no one in the building wanted to see this match. And this finish obviously buried me. I got beat like five times in a match. And it was done to protect Mike Awesome, who in two weeks is going to be that 70s guy anyway. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> 
it's this was their chance. I could have been a god in Canada. We should have had the long match. He could have gotten out of the half crab. I win with the sharpshooter in the middle of the ring. The crowd could have went nuts. You bring Brett out and you have the announcer speculating. It's like, that's Brett's move. What's Brett coming out here? He might not like this kid taking his finish. And then when Brett gets up nose to nose with me, we hug. Mark Madden hits the line. It's like he was trained by the Hart family. Who do you think taught them the move? Mm -hmm. Brett endorses me and I'm now gold in Canada for the rest of my career. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess because you you do forget that Brett was on that show, and it's it's inter- it's interesting that they brought Brett out to endorse you afterwards, which they had to know that would make you a babyface. So why did they try so hard to portray you as a heel if the idea was we're going to bring Brett out afterwards? I to go back again to my my desire to see you and Booker have had a world title on this uh, match on the show. How great would it have been if it had? been you two in the main event and Bret Hart was announced ahead of time as the referee. It's also crazy that Bret Hart made an unadvertised appearance on this show. Yeah. And you're well, able he- to advertise like, wait, Bret's an honorable guy. He's he's not going to fuck over Booker T, but this is Canada. This is Lance. Does he want to see a Canadian world champion? And I don't know. I think there's a lot more you could have done. Uh, uh, out of that. And yeah, it, it is crazy to think that Bret Hart was on that show completely unadvertised. In their defense, Bret was still post-concussion here. Right. Mm. When, when I met him, because I mentioned it was the first time I met him backstage mm-hmm. talking to him, I could tell he still wasn't right. Okay. okay. Like he just, and I think that's why they didn't advertise him. I'm not sure they were sure he would make it. Okay. He like I it was actually a little bit sad for me because I, I just his eyes weren't focused. He wasn't sharp. And thankfully, he did a nitro uh, appearance, maybe only like two or three weeks later. I don't remember how long it is. Mm-hmm. And I saw him again and it was like night and day. It's like, oh, that's Brett. He's back. OK, well, that, the, that's good. To the, hear. Yeah, the clouds had cleared, but they didn't clear that day. So he couldn't have refereed that match, I don't think. Uh, and in honesty, he probably shouldn't have been there. Okay. But thankfully, the next appearance that he does on Nitro, whenever you get to it, it's like that was Bret Hart again, clear, sharp, easy to talk to. And it was like I was so happy when I saw him that second time. Well, so instead, the ref, uh, the match was ref by was it Carl Ouellette? Was that who ended up uh, refing that match? Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau was the one mm. <laughs> who did that. Uh, yeah, that was. I'm, so, and it's weird because like it wasn't even uh, promoted as a Canadian rules match ahead of time. It's just a thing that was thrown out there the day of. The, the craziest thing to me, though, Brian, is what you know what Lance just said about them wanting to protect Mike Awesome. You mean the same Mike Awesome that you spent the last three weeks making fun of? The la- the same Mike Awesome that spent this episode, you know, arguing with his girlfriend about sandwiches and donuts, like. Okay, so we're we're gonna we're gonna bury this guy in order to protect this guy that we haven't been taking good care of in the first place. Like it's 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 frust- the whole thing is frustrating. So yeah, uh, you know, kind of kind of wrapping up. We've got uh, we we got to thank you, Lance, for uh, uh, for for coming on, for watching this episode, for enduring it uh, once <laughs> as a viewer and then once as a commentator here. Uh, I got I got a lot more questions uh, about where your character would go, but I don't want to spoil anything uh, for the audience uh, uh, as we come down the pike. So I just want to say uh, uh, say thanks and, and, and ask uh, what you'd like to plug uh, here at the end of the show. 
Uh, well, I'd like to plug Storm Wrestling Academy. You can go to stormwrestlingacademy.com if you're interested in training with me in the ring in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. You can also follow Storm Wrestling Academy on Instagram, or you can follow me, Lance Storm, at Lance Storm on Twitter. And I'll throw a plug out for my former podcast, Killing the Town, which is now uh, Cyrus and Paul Lazenby. I'm no longer on the show, but uh, I'll plug it just the same. Uh, and that's about all I got to plug. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lance, for, again, taking the time uh, to come on the show with us. Uh, if you want me, uh, if you want to find me anywhere, I am at Brian Maxman all over the internet, Instagram, all those social places. And also, please, do me a favor, watch Open Late uh, with Peter Rosenberg on Complex. Uh, I write and produce the show. And, uh, yeah, we're doing, we're doing a lot of fun stuff over there. And we have uh, uh, our last four episodes of the season coming up, and we have some really pretty incredible names uh, coming up on the show. I can't say who they are now, but check it out. It's on Complex's YouTube. And the more you do stuff like that and watch that, the more I can do uh, dumb stuff like this for free. So go check that out. <laughs> uh, Nate, I'm going to toss it over to you. Uh, you know, Give the people the good word uh, until there's uh, you know, another trial in, uh, in two weeks. Yes. Uh, again, I want to thank the listeners for checking out this week's edition of Keep It 2000. Uh, I also want to send a special shout out to uh, Brother Lance Storm for hopping aboard the Satellite of Hate and, uh, and reliving this episode. Uh, I'm sure Brian and I are going to have to pay for his therapy bills now. The, the, the trauma <laughs> that this episode might have brought back for him. Uh, but if you want to hear more from me, you can check me out on Twitter at in the number eight M O Z A I K at Nate Mosaic on Twitter. Uh, there you'll hear or see me talk about uh, sports and politics, and uh, there's links to uh, Kings of Sport, which is a show I do at Marcus Vanderberg, and and all sorts of good stuff. So uh, check me out on Twitter, uh, and of course. Subscribe to Post Wrestling so you can get uh, these hot shows each and every week, people. Uh, but as I always do, I like to leave us with some wise words, normally taken from a musical uh, piece, to uh, bring back everything that we've endured this weekend and put it in some context. So I'm going to go to that great Canadian anthem, uh, Bang Bang Boom by the Moffats, and relate it to our experience this week, folks. And my blood starts pumping. And my heart goes jumping every time shivani says we have to go now but it really don't matter because for worse or for better wcw will always be my number one Shit like this. this, this.